On this episode of Blue 58, the draft is closing in and it's time to start taking a look at the kind of players the Packers might be interested in selecting at this time next month. But we're doing things a little bit differently this year. I'll explain in a second. Then the NFL lost a great one this month and people are thinking about his departure all wrong. I'll tell you why. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here one more time. It's hard to believe, but the draft is only about a month away. Really about four weeks away. And we are going to be heading down the home stretch in short order here very quickly. So what we're going to do over the next month or so, over the next eight, nine episodes is take a look position by position at players the Packers could draft. Or maybe players that I think you should be aware of. Because I think we're going to do things a little bit differently this year than we've done it in years past. The past couple years, we've been very focused on looking at the Packers' history and trying to use their trends, their preferences, their physical guidelines to narrow down who the Packers could pick. And there's nothing wrong with that approach. I think it's very good. I think it's good stuff to be aware of. And we're going to incorporate some of that into what we do this year. But I think just limiting it to that is the wrong way to go about it. So I would encourage you to continue to seek those sorts of things out. But this year, as far as the power sweep is concerned, we're going to go in a slightly different direction. I'd like to focus on five types of players within each position group as we go on our journey between now and the NFL draft. Let's take edge rushers, for example, since that's what we're going to talk about on this particular episode. You may have guessed that by the title. Within the players that you could qualify, quantify, describe as edge rushers, I want to talk about five different kind of archetypes. The best fit for the Packers, the worst fit for the Packers, a potential sleeper within that position group, a player who attends a small school, and then kind of a wild card, a guy who we're not really sure what you should be thinking about. Why these five? I'll tell you. That's why you ask rhetorical questions, so you can tell people the answer to a question that you want them to have asked. See, just all sorts of information on this show. Why these five? Well, I think the temptation... When you just look at the Packers' athletic fits, athletic profiles, whatever, and go from there is that even within that, you tend to skew towards the higher profile prospects. And there's nothing wrong with that. Most of us are only really interested in the first couple rounds of the draft anyway and can really only form a substantive opinion about the first couple rounds of the draft anyway. So just focusing on those is fine. But I think looking at these five archetypes is going to help us get a, if not comprehensive look at this position group, get us kind of a better cross-section. Because in researching this, we're going to look, I at least am going to look at more than one player who could fit into each of these categories, and maybe we won't just limit ourselves to five. But targeting these particular position groups gives us guys who are at the top end of the draft, maybe at the middle of the draft, and guys who may not get drafted at all, but might be worth keeping an eye on. And I think getting a more well-rounded look at the draft as a whole will help us look at things as we move forward. Bob McGinn had a really good point before he went behind a paywall on a blog about preparing for the draft. He said one of the things that he really liked 
about researching everybody who is in a particular draft class is that a year down the line, two years down the line, three years down the line, when the Packers were playing against these other teams, he could pull out stuff that scouts had told him at the time about players that the Packers are now playing against and have a sort of baseline knowledge about them to begin with. Then he could look at where they had been and what they had done in between the draft and then and kind of have, a again, a, a well-rounded opinion about them. This, I think, is going to be the light version of that. We're going to look at some guys who may not end up with the Packers at all, but will be good to keep an eye on throughout the draft as a whole. Make sense? Good. Let's continue. Edge rushers. Why edge rushers? I think there's a couple reasons that we should, the Packers and us, should be open to the idea of drafting an edge rusher first early, and then just as a general rule at any point in the draft this year. The Packers, I think, are far from set on the edge. Just because they signed Zadarius Smith and Preston Smith, who are nominally edge rushers, does not mean they fix their issues there. They could still use more. And they need more. And having more is always better than having less. More to the point, look at how the Packers have performed in years when they've actually had relatively good defenses. Dating back to 2009, the Packers have had five top 15 scoring defenses since then. Just the raw points. How many points have you allowed? Five times. 2009, 2010, 2012, 14, and 15. Each of those seasons, the Packers had a top 15 scoring defense in the NFL. And in most of those years, they had more than one player who was producing regular pressure. In 2015, the Packers had two players with six and a half sacks or more. In 2014, they had two with seven or more. In 2012, they had one guy who had 12 sacks, Clay Matthews, and everyone else had four and a half or less. In 2010, they had three players with six and a half or more. And in 2009, they had one player with 10, three with between four and four and a half, and then everyone else had less than four. But then in 2018, when the Packers' defense was not as good, you had just Kyler Fackrell with 10.5, and and no other edge rusher had more than 6. In fact, other than Blake Martinez and Kenny Clark, nobody else had more than 5. And those numbers are a little bit troubling. First, we know that Kyler Fackrell's 10.5 sacks was a little bit unreliable. Three of those sacks came against the Bills, including one sack where he actually never touched the quarterback. He just got credit with it, credited with it because Josh Allen kind of tripped over himself, his offensive line, the turf at Lambeau Field, a little bit of everything, and just kind of gave up on the play. Kyler Fackrell ended up getting credit for that sack. He also had three against the Seahawks, not downplaying him for having three against a very good team, but at least one of those sacks was a bit of a cheapie. He stayed home on the backside, which is a good, smart play by him, and uh, not Kyler Fackrell. Russell Wilson ran almost exactly directly into him. So he gets credit for that sack. He didn't do a whole lot. It wasn't like he beat a guy one-on-one. He just happened to be there when Russell Wilson thought nobody would be home on the backside, and Wilson kind of gives up in the play, and Fackrell gets a sack. So at least two of his ten and a half were sacks that could have happened to anyone. And then you've got four, again, in just those two games. You start whittling down pretty far, and basically you're left with a lot of games when Kyler Fackrell didn't produce a whole lot at all. Then you've got Kenny Clark, who had six, which is great, 
but I think sacks from your, your interior pass rush are more of a bonus than something you want to be building around. And finally, Blake Martinez had five, most of them on kind of schemed pressure. Again, all the credit to him for making those plays when they are available, but still, that's not something you want to be building your pass rush around. All that to say, the Packers could use more guys, even with Zadarius Smith and Preston Smith, who can regularly get to the quarterback, beating the guy in front of them one-on-one. And to get those guys, you're going to have to draft an edge rusher. So let's talk edge rushers, starting with the guy who I believe is the best fit for the Green Bay Packers. That guy is Montez Sweat from Mississippi State. I like him because he's a super long, super athletic version of Preston Smith. One of the great things about Preston Smith is his length. He's got enormous, enormously long arms. But Montez Sweat's arms are even longer. He has an absolutely insane 84-inch wingspan at 6 feet 5 and change. Big, long guy described by Lance Zerline of NFL.com as leggy. I think that's accurate. Chris Trapasso, the the scout, the analyst, uh, compares him to Daniil Hunter of the Minnesota Vikings. He was 6'5", about 252 coming out. Montez Sweat is 6'5", a little bit over. over. I've seen him listed at 6'6", in some, some places, and about 260 pounds. At the combine, he was a little bit lighter on the bench press than you'd probably like. He put up 21 reps, but... From the pure size, speed, athleticism perspective, he's right where you'd like him to be. Really about as good as you could possibly hope for. Dane Brugler points out for The Athletic that since the start of 2017, his 22 sacks are the second most by any Power 5 FBS player during that span, along with Josh Allen. Just very good. There are some concerns here. He's a little bit light uh, at 260 pounds for his height, and that weight may limit his positional versatility. But I think with a guy who's athletic as he is, who is as athletic as he is, you don't worry about that. You kind of just stick him on the edge and say, go after the quarterback. Use that prodigious athleticism to get around the edge and get to the quarterback as quickly as you can. The best fit is not going to be one where we have to dive super deep because most of the time we're going to be talking about a guy who's at the top of the draft. And you know about all of these guys. Montez Sweat is that. I've seen him mocked to the draft or to the Packers since back in January. Not super regularly because he's often projected to go a little bit higher than that, but he's within in the realm of possibility for 12. It's, it's not impossible. And I think he would be a great fit if the Packers could get him. Uh, I, I just like his size. I like his length. And, uh, I think he would be an excellent different option for the Packers. The worst fit is also one we're not going to have to spend a whole lot of time on because hopefully the Packers aren't going to be drafting him. And, you know, they probably won't see a lot of teams connecting or a lot of mock drafts connecting the Packers to a player who is not a good fit. Chances are this is going to be somebody who's projected to go later in the draft, but they may be interesting to talk about nonetheless. As far as the Packers and the worst fit this year, uh, I pick out C.C. Jefferson of Florida. He is not a highly touted prospect in this draft process, but he's worth taking a look at, I think, for one reason. He had a teammate at Florida who is much more famous than he is now. Look at the differences now between Mr. Jefferson and one Ja'Kai Polite. Both played at the highest level of college football, obviously, since they were teammates. Both highly regarded prospects out of high school. Jefferson, in fact, was a quintessential five-star prospect out of high school. 
And yet the difference between them is just enormous. Even with all the things that went wrong for Ja'Kai Polite at the Combine, he's still doing pretty well. You wouldn't expect him to go later than the second or third round on the extreme late end. I'd still think it's not all that outside the realm of possibility that he could be a first pick. Jefferson had considered coming out after his junior year, but he returned and that proved to be a bad choice. He had a significant shoulder injury uh, that required surgery. He was also suspended due to some content or uh, conduct that the coaches didn't particularly like and basically torpedoed any chance he had of getting significant attention in the NFL draft. I do not think he's a good fit for the Packers. He's not a great size speed type prospect. And I think even though he is nominally an edge rusher, he would be a tough fit for a 3-4 scheme, even though that's not necessarily exactly what the Packers run anymore. And nobody even really runs a pure 3-4-4-3 type scheme in the modern NFL. That's not Jefferson's fault. That's not anybody's fault. But I think he would have a hard time fitting in with the kind of players the Packers are looking for when they're looking for guys to rush the passer especially given their acquisition of guys like Zedarius Smith and Preston Smith, both who are more classic edge types. As far as sleeper guys, I went back and forth on this. I picked a, a couple different names that I wanted to write about, talk about. The one, true, the one that I settled on was Andrew Van Ginkle from Wisconsin. I think a lot of people are going to like this particular individual because of his story, for one thing. He went from junior college to the Wisconsin Badgers and now potentially to the NFL. Even dealt with a little bit of adversity at the start of this year um, with an injury. Kind of bounced back at a great run down the stretch as he finished out his career in Madison. He's got good but not great size. Goes six foot three, about 240-ish pounds. Good but not great speed, four, five, six in the 40. That's that's pretty good for a linebacker in general. At that size and speed, though, I don't, or at that size and weight, though, I don't think that's as good as it necessarily looks. If he was running that at 255, 260, then you'd say you probably have something. He was not there, especially strongly on the bench either. He put up just 17 reps at 225 pounds. But the thing about Van Ginkle is this he's got an elite three cone drill time, and his short shuttle time was also very, very good as well. This is the sort of player that gets slotted maybe as an edge rusher in the draft, maybe a guy a little bit like Vince Beagle, but may end up being a little bit better off the ball where he doesn't have to worry about necessarily engaging with those big offensive tackles one-on-one. That may ultimately be where he ends up playing in the NFL, and he may also ultimately just end up being a really good special teams type player. But he does have the athleticism, at least in part, of an elite edge rush type in many ways. Maybe you take him in the sixth or seventh round and just see what you can kind of do. You never really know. But one of the things that's interesting about him is just kind of kind of his narrative. He, he's one of those guys that falls into the, I guess, the, the whole, the, the news hole almost. He, he falls into a cliche. It's just a cliche in so many ways. Well, just, just listen here from, from the Journal Times. Um, an article titled, get out of the way, pop-up, 
article titled Linebacker Van Ginkle Ready to End Career with a Flourish, written by Jason Galloway. Just, just this paragraph or two here. Coming out of Rock Valley High School, not a single FBS program noticed the potential Jim Leonard the Wisconsin defensive coordinator, saw in Van Ginkle during the early days of spring ball last year. One reason for that, and perhaps the sole reason, came from Van Ginkle's decision not to attend recruiting camps, particularly in the months leading up to his senior season. Rather than spend his summer traveling, Van Ginkle helped out his family by taking a job in construction. Quote, he'd work construction all day, do a lot of cement pouring, and then he'd go to the weight room for two hours until about 7, 8 o'clock at night, end quote. Rock Valley High coach Corey Brandt said. He continues, that was his senior year summer, so he didn't get a lot of recognition. If you don't go to a lot of camps, they don't see you, you're not on their radar, end quote. So, high school football player, works a construction job in the summer, goes out and lifts weights after he does his construction job, no D1 offers, so he goes to junior college, ends up with Madison in the story, or with the, with the Wisconsin Badgers in Madison, I should say, and now he's off to the NFL. Also worth noting, I always like to look back at what guys did as high school athletes outside of football because I think you, you can get a good idea, just one, the kind of person a guy is, and two, what kind of athlete they are if they have success in other sports. I think it's good that guys play more than one sport other than just football because it, I think it makes you a more well-rounded athlete. Van Ginkle, according to his bio with the Wisconsin Badgers, was a five-time state qualifier in track, including bids in long jump and the 4x100 and 4x200 relays as a senior. Not too bad, Mr. Van Ginkle. There is your sleeper. Look for him in the later rounds. Small schools and then wild cards, the two remaining categories we have to talk about. Small schools are interesting. These are guys that may be completely off most fans' radars, but these are where you can find some really interesting storylines and maybe even some really interesting players too. Just because a guy's not playing in big-time college football doesn't mean he can't contribute in a big way. Daryl Johnson from North Carolina A&T may not be the guy who makes it big in the NFL, but it's hard not to like what you read about him. Uh, Dane Brugler, again of The Athletic, projects him as a 6th or 7th round pick. This is what he has to say. Quote, although his lack of power move makes it easy for blockers to slow him down, Johnson gets upfield quickly with the cornering skills to dip and skim blockers, flattening to the quarterback. End quote. What's the appeal of Daryl Johnson? Why do I think he's an interesting guy to talk about coming out of a small school? Well, just listen to his physical dimensions. Six feet, six inches tall, 253 pounds. And according to the Greensboro News and Record, Mr. Johnson has a 103-inch wingspan. Eight feet, seven inches at six feet, six inches tall. For comparison, Kevin Durant of the Golden State Warriors who, depending on the source you believe for his height, is somewhere between four and six inches taller than Daryl Johnson, had a wingspan of just 89 inches, more than a foot shorter. 103 inches is just mind-blowing. He could almost fly with wings like that. Daryl Johnson was the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference Player of the Year. He only did the bench press at the Combine, Put up 20 reps, good, not great. His pro day was a little bit disappointing. He ran 4.79 in the 40-yard dash, but the Greensboro News and Record has an explanation for that from Mr. Johnson himself. 
they wrote about him before his senior season. The article reads, but speed remains the centerpiece of his game. He's been clocked at 4.7 seconds in the 40-yard dash, a time that irks him. Johnson says, you know what? I'm faster than that. The 40 is a technique thing, but I feel like if I run after someone who is faster than me in the 40, I can still get him. I can run a faster time. Football speed is different than 40 speed anyway. You're changing directions. You're taking on blocks. Anyone can run straight ahead, but can you break down and redirect? End quote. Interesting that he mentions breaking down and redirecting there at the end, because that's some of the stuff that Mr. Brugler wrote about him in the profile for The Athletic. He has that short area quickness. Uh, He's got good bend and can get around the edge very well. That, I think, is promising when you're talking about a guy who's played at a small school. So maybe that's a name worth keeping an eye on. I sure will because he was, you know, interesting to me. And I love that story. I love that nugget about having that 103-inch wingspan. That is just absolutely enormous. To jump back up for a second, all the way to the top, just to compare apples to to apples, Montez Sweat, who I described as having absolutely enormous enormous arms, has a wingspan of just like 84 inches. So even though they're almost the exact same height, Johnson's wingspan is just night and day different. That's pretty cool to me. Let's finish this off by talking about the wild card, I think, that there is at the, the edge rusher group this year. That has to be Jakai Polite. He's a little bit on the small side, but not too small. Six foot two, 258 pounds. That weight in particular is interesting because according to the Orlando Sentinel, Jakai Polite gave up sweets before his last year at Florida and lost 25 pounds. My goodness, Jakai, how much candy were you eating? Here's what they wrote. Every day used to be like Halloween for University of Florida defensive lineman Jakai Polite. But if Polite planned to shine on Saturdays and eventually play on Sundays, he had to choose between candy or sacks. Swedish fish were Polite's guilty pleasure, and I feel you there, Jakai. But after last season, he decided to give up his sugary snacks to become an edge rusher no offense wanted to face. Quote, I'm kind of too old for candy, said Polite, age 20. So I had to slow down on that and focus on my future, end quote. He is focused on his future, by the way. He is famous for his Twitter handle, at retire moms. Interesting note on that, his mom does not actually plan to retire if and when he gets drafted into the NFL. She might give up part of her job. She works as a, a housekeeper at a hotel, but she also does people people's hair in her hometown and uh, does not plan to give that up. So mom will not be retired no matter what happens with her son. Ja'Kai Polite once seemed kind of like a lock for the Packers at 12 Overall, everybody seemed to have them connected. He was productive in college. Uh, He seemed like he had a a real good motor on him, but he had a really, really tough combine. Now, even seeing him go in the third round wouldn't be a huge surprise. And it seems like the interviews, on top of some poor testing, were the real problem. And we continue to get reports about how things went at those interviews that seemed pretty concerning. For instance, Matt Miller, writing for Bleacher Report, says another SEC player tumbling down boards is Florida edge rusher Ja'Kai Polite, who struggled in interviews at the Combine. Said one area scout who covers the Southeast, quote, Polite might not even go in the second round. It's bad, man, end quote. But he does have some elite skills. And to circle back to Dane Brugler for The Athletic, his read on Polite is that he is very explosive. 
and he says that makes him attractive to NFL teams. Quote, in the NFL, explosive players are at a premium because of the importance of the first and last steps, making polite an attractive prospect with his instant speed and closing burst to finish at the quarterback. However, his maturity has been red flagged by multiple NFL teams and will affect his final draft grade. Overall, Polite needs to improve as a run defender and prove he can be an any-down player, but he is a quarterback assassin with his combination of first-step quickness, motor, and finishing skills, projecting best as a stand-up rusher in a 3-4 scheme, end quote. So what do you do with a guy like Ja'Kai Polite? I think you've got to trust the film first and foremost. If the guy on film looks good, I think you ignore those bad testing numbers because testing numbers can be twisted any number of ways. If you like a guy and he tests well, you say, well, that just confirms what I saw on tape. If you don't like a guy and then he tests well, you aren't really sure, but then you you got to go back to the tape. Either way, no matter what he, he does, you're going to end up circling back to that tape. So I think if the Packers trust the film, maybe you consider him at some point in the draft. But where? Well... To me, this seems like an ideal fit for the Packers' 30th pick, the pick at number 30 overall. You don't have the risk built in with the 12th overall pick. You've got a little bit of a cushion because you've got another, another selection coming up at 44. Maybe that's where you take a little bit of a swing. I don't know if he gets all the way to 44. I have seen some stuff that people think he could go in the third round. I'm not sure I super believe that. I think this might be a roll of the dice worth taking. But it gets complicated because Polite said by name that the Packers were one of the teams trying to apparently trip him up in interviews, asking him questions about why he didn't necessarily perform as well as he could have during his senior year. Does that mean the Packers are out of the running entirely? I wouldn't think so. But it does add a bit of an interesting layer to a potential Jakai Polite pick. So that's edge rushers. Those are five guys that I'm keeping an eye on. We'll keep a running list of these guys to review as we uh, approach the day itself. While I've got you here, I want to talk for a second about Rob Gronkowski. Gronk announced his retirement this week on Instagram. Seems kind of fitting for a uh, almost consummate millennial type player. Bit of a doofus, bit of a guy who marched to his own drum, to the beat of his own drum. And I think everybody loved him for it, and rightly so. But I think we're kind of getting his departure wrong. At least some people are. Because the number one question I've seen asked of the Patriots now is, how do you replace Rob Gronkowski? To me, that is the wrong question to ask. Because you can't replace Rob Gronkowski. It's just not going to happen. A quick illustration. Over the past three years, Rob Gronkowski has been injured a lot. He's only, he hasn't played a full season since 2011. He hasn't played more than 14 games in any of the past three seasons. He played 13 games in 2018, started just 11, just 14 games in 2017, and just eight in 2016, just 35 games total over a three-season span. Over that stretch, though, he he compiled 141 catches for 2,300 yards and change and 14 touchdowns. That works out to a per 16-game average of 64 catches for 1,054 yards and 6 touchdowns. 
that's production you don't just replace. How do I know that? Well, since 2009, there have only been 16 instances of that stat line appearing next to an NFL tight end's name for a single year. Only 16 times in the past decade has a tight end had at least 60 catches, 1,000 yards, and 6 touchdowns. It just doesn't happen. Four of those 16 times have been Rob Gronkowski. He is almost entirely unique in the NFL, maybe in NFL history. So you don't just replace Rob Gronkowski. The better question to ask is how will the Patriots change their offense to account for the loss of Rob Gronkowski? It's a subtle difference, but it's an important difference because this is something that Bill Belichick does better than any other coach in the NFL right now and maybe any other NFL coach ever. The Patriots have evolved considerably since he took over in New England. Just look no further than how they've played in Super Bowls since he took over. Dating back to their first Super Bowl win over the St. Louis Rams, they were an entirely different team. That team was almost entirely built around defense. I know Tom Brady has the reputation of, you know, that clutch game-winning player. And to be fair, he did make some good plays in that first Super Bowl win. But the Patriots were an entirely different team. They didn't rely on Tom Brady pretty much at all. That first Super Bowl win was almost entirely based around the defense to the point that Brady was virtually a non-factor for almost the entire game. His, his final stat line was 16 of 27, 145 yards, and one touchdown. His final quarterback rating was 86.2. He didn't have a pass that went longer than 23 yards that entire day. But as Tom Brady grew, the offense changed. They've been an air-it-out offense. They've been the ultimate kind of final version of the West Coast offense with slot receivers, timing patterns, and a tight end who could win one-on-one. They're going to be changing now as Rob Gronkowski heads off to greener pastures. And that's the real interesting question here. Not how will they replace Rob Gronkowski, because replacing him is impossible. What are they going to do to change instead? That's the real question, and that's the kind of question more NFL teams should be asking as they adapt to their personnel, ones that are retiring and ones that aren't. That's all I've got for you on this episode. Thank you so much for downloading, for tuning in, for everything. Thank you so much for all your support. If you liked what you've heard and want to help us keep this all going, the best way to support us is to leave a review and a rating on iTunes. It helps more people find the show. If you want to take your support to the next level, the best way to do that is to donate a dollar per month at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. One dollar per month is enough to offset our hosting costs for this podcast and for our website. And don't forget to check out our great selection of t-shirts and sweatshirts by clicking the shop link at thepowersweep.com. If you've got an idea for the show or just want to say hi, you can reach us at thepowersweep.com on Facebook and on Twitter or by emailing thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. We do appreciate anybody who takes the time to reach out. Every bit of feedback, every question you ask, every thought you offer helps us make Blue 58 and the Power Sweep better which furthers our mission of helping everybody become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.